Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Can we uh, bow our heads together this morning? And if you're willing, maybe where you are, just open your hands uh, to the Lord. God, I feel the need to pray right now, even though I'm not sure what to pray for. So I guess I'll begin just thanking you for a new year, for a new day. For mercies that keep flowing like the waves of the ocean, they just don't stop. Thanking you that you're not on vacation, you're not on some other planet, but you're fully involved in our lives. And as busy as you are today, all over this world, we have your undivided attention in this place. God, um, I guess I'm struggling with the pray because I don't know how much of you we could handle today. Meaning, I don't know if I pray an Isaiah 6 prayer that you'll fill this place with your glory or that you will do some of the things you did in the book of Acts and other places. For sometimes, God, I don't know if our hearts are prepared to receive you in your fullness. But however you choose to reveal yourself to us today, will you do that? And I ask, God, that you will touch down in someone's life today in some life-changing ways. And if you choose for me to ever hear some of those stories, I would love to. But God, if I never hear them, uh, I'm okay with that. I just want to ask that you'll do today more than we could ever ask or imagine. Uh, Unpack Ephesians 4 for us today and speak and breathe your Holy Spirit in and through it to bring it to life in ways that will point us uh, to Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Um, Happy New Year. I know uh, last Sunday was the first Sunday of the year, but this is the Sunday I kind of circled on my calendar as the first Sunday that as a church we would be back together. So let me just begin with good news as we get to meet 53 Sundays this year is that Jesus is on his throne. He reigns. He has defeated death. Jesus is greater than death, despair, loneliness, depression. Uh, And he is our foundation that we want to build our lives and this church upon. Uh, Now, as Jesus reigns, I don't know if you ever struggle with, like, the problem of evil. I mean, this is why some people choose to leave the faith or they struggle with Christianity or uh, how deep do they go with God because there's this problem of evil that exists in the world. I mean, it seems like almost every day now there's, like, a truck going into a crowd of people or uh, violence that's just going crazy. And sometimes it just feels like that as Jesus reigns, evil is winning and like running up the score. And I'm, I'm having these conversations. I'm processing this with my nine-year-old now. Like just the problem of the existence of evil, of if Jesus is reigning, why won't he just go ahead and like do away with evil forever? 
So let me begin today in Ephesians 4. And I want to begin two verses before what Sharice read this morning for us. And I want to talk about Jesus' ascension and what it means. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. It's on the screen. Hopefully you have the Bible in front of you. Uh, and hopefully you'll take some notes today. Take some notes of what you need to reread so you can edify, so yourself can be edified and maybe take a note of what is the way God wants you to bless someone else in your life. And by taking notes, you'll know how to bless them. Look in verse 9. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. People living in the first century, in the first few centuries of Christianity, they, they believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And they were trying to live like that, pray like that. All right, but for them, there was also this question of like the ascension of Jesus. Like, why did Jesus have to go away? I mean, I talk about this. My boys ask these kind of questions of why did Jesus have to go away? Because wouldn't it be so much better if Jesus was right here with us where we could see him and we could shake his hand and give him a hug and hear his voice? So why did he have to ascend? And I think the church in Ephesus was asking the same questions, like, why did Jesus have to ascend? So what Paul does is he explains to them that Jesus descended, meaning he became fully human for us, and then he ascended into the heavens. But then there's that one phrase at the very end of verse 10. And underline it, circle it, put a star by it, however you do that in the Bibles, because what it says is he ascended so that he could fill all things. This is more than an escape plan from Jesus. This wasn't Jesus just going to another place and then whenever God gave him the word to come back down to earth that he's going to come back, it'll be a second coming and it'll make all things right. This, was, this wasn't that. This was, this was if you read it, it, it's almost like this positioning power. It's this posture that Jesus took, that his ascension was to put him in a place where he could reign over all things and fill all things. So today you can't see it. But from Jesus is coming all of these gifts of grace and gifts of mercy and spiritual gifts that he is dispensing upon this planet and upon people. Maybe you can see some of them and maybe you can't. But they're falling around the world today. He's dispensing these gifts. He's trying to fill all things with this glory. Now, sometimes I think he is, he's dropping these gifts just to bless the world and to bless you and to bless families in the church and to bless humanity. But sometimes I think he's holding a gift, waiting for us to create some space in our hearts and minds to receive a gift so that he can have some space to work with. All right, Jesus has positioned himself to rain down good gifts uh, upon you. Now, here's one question. What did God do with the creation at the very beginning? When God created, what did God do with his creation? All right, because God spoke creation into existence. But immediately after that, what God started to do is he began to cultivate what he created. He didn't just create stuff, set it in motion, and then take his hands off and step away. God, uh, he expected his creation to be cultivated and to be developed and for reproduction to happen. And God created things so that it could reproduce. It, there was progression, there was growth, there was development that happened when God created. There was this expectation for creation. So let's ask the same question, not just about creation, but what does God expect out of new creation? Because anyone who has died with Christ and has been raised with Christ, you are a new creation. What does God expect out of new creation? And God expects cultivation, development, formation, growth. 
that he doesn't expect it to stay like it was when it first became new creation. But there's this progression that takes form. Transformation, development, maturity. Uh, So I have two boys. Uh, They're nine and seven. And I hope that they will continue to develop into men. Like, like when you have kids, like, man, early on, they're some of the early on, when we had, when they were infants, those are some of the longest days of our lives. Because we sat around asking questions, will they ever sleep through the night? And we knew that the day, we figured the day would come when they would. It felt really long in the moment. But there's this development that has happened in them just over the decade that I've been a dad. And some of the little things you begin to celebrate when they can sleep through the night, when, when they finally got to an age where I did not have to, well, Casey didn't have to change diapers anymore, you know? When they got to an age when Casey and I could lay in bed on a Saturday and they can reach up in a cabinet and get their own breakfast and turn on the TV by themselves and things like that. There, I, there's this development that I expect in them that... Uh, that we celebrate when the day came when they no longer use the restroom in the bathtub, all right? And that day is, we're still waiting on that day to come, or, you know, when they have better aim, if you know what I'm saying, and things like that, all right? There are things I expect from my boys. I want them to develop the ability to critically think, to make good decisions, to be good, to have good social skills. There are these kind of things I expect from them. I hope for it. I want it. Casey and I want to help cultivate a house that does that. But when it comes to faith, there are things we want them, like we expect from them too. I want them to have an understanding of Jesus that he's more than a get out of hell free card. But he's a new way to live. I remember I stood up on this stage. uh, I don't know if Betty Litton's here, but her grandson, Eric, who's about to graduate high school when he was 11 years old, maybe 12, is when he was, he was baptized. And many of us were here to witness it. And I remember I was standing right here and his whole family was down there. And I was talking to Eric about what it means to follow Jesus. And I was like, dude, you know, I mean, to follow Jesus means that, you know, you have to treat your siblings better. Do you get that? And he was like, yes. And I said, Jesus doesn't just want to be your friend. He wants to be the Lord of your life. Do you understand that? He said, yes. And I, I asked him a couple of more questions about Jesus being the Lord and the Savior. And I, and I said, but you also know, and, and Eric is a diehard U of M fan, loves the Tigers to the core. And I was like, you know that now following Jesus means that you're going to have to pray for UT fans, love UT fans, show respect to UT fans. And all of a sudden his face like went white. All right. He was like, I didn't know that following Jesus is going to mean this, you know. And then I had this moment of panic of, I just talked him out of his baptism, all right. Like, how am I going to explain this to his family, you know. So I was like, Do we, you know, we could gradually learn some of those things later on in life, all right. But there are things that I want from my kids when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. Jesus is more than a mascot. I want them to understand that Jesus is more than a life insurance plan. He's more than an agenda. He's more than status change. Jesus is more than you going from unsaved to saved or lost to found or hell-bound to heaven-bound. He's a whole new way to live. And what I want my kids to understand is that when it comes to faith, God invites and God expects growth, maturity, and development. And what I want for my kids is what I want for every member of this church too. It's for you to understand that you never outgrow a time in your life when you were no longer in need or qualified for development and formation and for maturity. With God, there's always a next step. There's always another step to maturity and progression and development. Now, 
I, I, I want to be really hesitant how I even talk about that because I want you to understand God invites you and God expects spiritual growth to be happening in your life. But it doesn't happen at the pace of your preacher or at the pace of the elders of this church. It happens at God's pace. And God's pace is different for certain people because he knows what we can handle and what he's helping navigate you through. So my invitation to you is to pray this week and pray this year, God, what is the next step for me? And I want to move at your pace. And where are you moving and how are you calling me to follow? All right, look in your Bible and let me uh, unpack a little bit more. Look in verse 11 of Ephesians 4. The gifts God gave were that some would be apostles, some evangelists, some prophets, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity to the full measure of the full stature of Jesus Christ. Let me see a show of hands to all the elders and the ministers of this church, the full-time ministers. Let me just see a show of hands. Because if you're a member here, Like, you have the right to lovingly go up to them today and point them to Ephesians 4 and to say, this is what I need from you, right? To use your calling, to embrace your calling in a way that you are equipping me for acts of service. Now, what we read, though, I mean, Ephesians 4 talks about gifts that came to the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 talks about how every member of the body has been given a spiritual gift from God. God dispenses gifts upon every believer. There is a gift, and maybe some of you are at a point in your life where you know what your spiritual gift or gifts are. You've been able to name them and embrace them and acknowledge them, and you have something to pray for. Maybe some of you aren't really sure yet, which I encourage you to pray or talk with me or someone else. What may that gift be? There are some gifts that God has not given you yet because God is not ready to bring them to life inside of you or to cultivate them. But what we read is that God gives members of the body gifts, and every gift God gives is to edify the body for works of service. Now, in Ephesians 4, it's very specific. It's not just that God gives gifts and the Spirit gives gifts to every member. In Ephesians 4, it's very specific. There are leaders of the church that have been given gifts of pastoring and of teaching. And these gifts have been given so that they, they use those gifts to equip the body. The gifts God gives are not for honor and it's not for recognition, and it's not for position, and it's not for appreciation, and to hang plaques on walls. The gifts God gives is to edify and equip the body for works of service. The gifts that bring the most praise to God are when gifts are serving the body to bring people to life. I want you to follow leaders, and I'm grateful this church is full of them. I want you to follow leaders whose hands are dirty, whose knees are worn out, because for them, being a leader is not about what you wear and how you present yourself in front of other people, but that you exist to bring others to life. All right. Um, I, I feel like I have to drop like a little Will Smith line or something like twice a year because I'm a product of the 1990s, which means I was formed by Fresh Prince back in the days, all right? And and there's this little nugget of wisdom that came from Will, and I wasn't expecting it. But it was right after the movie Hitch came out. This was a little over a decade ago. Funny movie. And I was watching this interview with Will because in the interview, and, and some of the criticism about the movie, people who write critiques about movies, some of what they said was, how could an A-list actor like Will Smith allow Kevin James, this funny comedian, to steal the show? Like there were some scenes in the movie Hitch 
where it was like Kevin James took center stage and ran with it, and we were dying laughing, not at Will, but at Kevin. So in this interview I was watching with Will, the question was asked of, hey, a lot of A-list actors won't let co-actors come on and, like, steal the show from them. So why did you allow Kevin to do it? And Will's responding like this, and I think this means something to the church, all right, even though I don't know if he had the church in mind when he said it. He said, um, I want to use my gift to help other people use their gifts in a way that I am pushing them to center stage so that they can play their instrument and their gift as loudly as they can. And I thought, man, isn't that the calling of the leaders of the church? That it's not for us to step up the center stage or the center stage of life and tell the church to watch us follow Jesus? It's to help people understand how God is bringing them to life and to push you into the world, to point you into the ways of Christ so that you know that God wants to use what God saves. All right, so as a church, what we laid out in front of you last January were what we call the five commitments. Uh, And so the first one is a commitment to discover. We want every person who comes into this church to take a step closer to Jesus. We're just asking people... Can you, can you make Sunday morning a priority? And, and can you join in the adventure of what it means to follow Jesus? We're asking every member to connect to a small group environment where spiritual formation is taking place. It's a mouthful, but it's so important that you're not just connected to people who care about friendship, though we value friendship, but it's connect to a small group environment where spiritual formation is taking place. So Bible classes, life groups, discipleship groups, um, uh, and, and we want, we believe that for spiritual formation to happen in your life, you need those friends that are pointing you deeper, taking you deeper. We're asking every member to commit to ways of service through ministry teams and through our strategic partners. We're asking members to give because there is, uh, we have a mission and a vision in this church. And sometimes missions and visions can be expensive because kingdom work is being done. Uh, and, and fifthly is a commitment to go that we don't just stay in a building, but we are moving and pressing into the world. So we believe that the gospel is wanting to form you to be faithful neighbors and coworkers, and that when we go into gas stations and grocery stores, we're not just checking off lists of things we need, but we're following Jesus. And there may be people who are in need of encouragement and light and life and love. And we want to, we're always constantly on this mission for Jesus. This isn't because we laid out these five commitments, because we're trying to reinvent the gospel from scratch is that we're trying to articulate the gospel and scripture in the 21st century culture and to lay some expectations in front of the church of what it means to be followers of Jesus. I want, I want development and maturity for my kids, and I want development and maturity for every member of this church. Uh, but here's the question I think I have to wrestle with sometimes, and we do. Is, is the maturity that God invites and expects of us like, is it an impossible task? Like, you read stuff like Ephesians 4, where it talks about the whole body living into the full measure of Jesus Christ. I mean, is that an impossible task? Because sometimes I feel like we settle for mediocrity because living into the fullness of Jesus seems like such an impossible task, so why should I even try? Like, I bet some of you, like, even when you were trying to think of those of you who make New Year's resolutions, like, there were some, you're like, well, I would love to lose... 30 pounds this year, but I don't know if that will happen, so why should I even try? Uh, 
And even when it comes to Jesus, it can be like, man, living into the fullness of Jesus, maturing in Christ, where do I even start? Where does it begin? What does it look like? Can I even get there? How how do I measure progress? But I don't think God would call us to something that God's not willing to step in and give us the strength to live into. Uh, I think it was Kip who was asking me, you know, anybody who sets a New Year's goal, I mean, what happens if you meet it? What happens if you meet some of the goals of your life? What good does it do for the kingdom? So for Paul, the language he uses is that the church, the leaders have been gifted to, to do a few things specifically, to, to equip the saints. Uh, and the language he uses, and I think it, it may still be on the screen, look at it in your Bible, until all of us grow to maturity, until all of us so when it comes to even how we think about education, and this, is go- this language has been around for over a decade, like no child left behind. Like there's not a child who was born in the U.S. who we don't need to care for and, and try to develop. And, and just as there's no child left behind, there needs in the church, like no one is left behind until all of us grow into Christ. And into unity, into the knowledge of the Son of God, and it's a maturity. That there's unity. It doesn't mean we're all the same, but it, mean, it means that we uh, commit ourselves to a common mission of following Jesus. Until there is knowledge of the Son of God, it's not just knowledge of anything, it's specific knowledge. That we as a church need to be growing in the knowledge of the Son of God, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he has to offer, and a commitment to maturity. And the language he uses is that... It, in verse 14, that we must no longer be children. It's, it's probably better said we must no longer be infants. The word used there, it's, it's someone who is at an age where they can't even articulate speech. There's no speech from them. That we've got to move beyond being spiritual infants that are tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. What, what this means is, is that if we remain infants and toddlers in the faith, we are so vulnerable to the enemy because we don't have a solid foundation and deep roots and knowledge of who Jesus is so that we know what is right and what is wrong. You got to move beyond infancy. Let me show you, let me, uh, let me help you understand again what, what this meant like for them. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus and people in Ephesus, they, the majority, if not almost everybody in that church would have been Gentiles, meaning they were Ephesus natives. They grew up in Ephesus. They lived in Ephesus. were raised in Ephesus. And, and Ephesus was one of the most immoral, ungodly, sinful places in the first century culture. Uh, it was the place that was known for witchcraft and magic. There were over two dozen uh, pagan temples, and every pagan temple had temple prostitutes, and for you to engage with them, what their, their teaching was it connected you to the gods of Rome. So you think about all the immorality that happened in and around Ephesus, and not only that, it was, Ephesus was also home to the largest keg fest in the first century world that one time a year, a million people would descend upon there. It was like their Woodstock. I mean, million people would come which gives a little context to Ephesians 5, and Paul says stuff like, hey, don't get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. For people who lived in Ephesus, they would know what he was referring to. And if you were raised in Ephesus, your moral compass hadn't taught you back in VBS the ways of God. Like you were raised with people promoting these things. 
not knowing what was right and wrong. And now you've been introduced to Jesus. Everybody in that church had a past. They had sins they could point to, all forms of immorality. When the church in Ephesus got together, it was a Celebrate Recovery meeting before they even knew what Celebrate Recovery was. It was, we've committed to the ways of Jesus, and we have a past, and, and they're teaching each other, and Paul's teaching them that, hey, none of you are beyond redemption, and not only that, you're not beyond being used by God to advance his kingdom, which is why the church of Ephesus grew from 12 people in Acts 19 to four decades later being a church of over tens of thousands of people because they believed that what God had accomplished in them was greater than their past. So the people who are hearing this about being tossed to and fro, about moving beyond spiritual infancy, the people who are hearing this from Paul about maturity and growth and progression, these are people who had a past. We have a past too in this church, right? We have people who have a lot of different experiences and pain and brokenness. And we love being able to say, we want to be a church that is for all people. That's a bold statement, right? Because a lot of churches say we want to be a church for all people, but they're all kind of caveats and footnotes. And we're really not that kind of person, but we want to be a church for anybody who has a desire to step closer to Jesus. We welcome them into this place. But we also acknowledge that we're not a church that's perfect. We're a church with a lot of pain. Um, So let me take a risk and let me help show us maybe um, who this church is made up of. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand for a few things, all right? And I want you to trust me that I'm not going to put you on the spot in a way that, um, that I'm going to cause friction in a marriage or between family members. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand in a way that will cause any kind of damage to you, all right? Um, and I already see people, like, shuffling in their pew, like, oh, man, where's this dude going, man? We should have never hired this young guy years ago. Um, and I'm going to name a few things, and you, you, even if you fit these categories, there's no, you, you do not have to, don't feel obligated to raise your hand. But here's who we are as a church. I just want to see a show of hands of the cancer survivors who we have in the Sycamore View Church. Just a show of hands. All right. Let me see a show of hands of those who are currently battling cancer or chronic disease. Can I see a show of hands? How many people in this church in your past have battled severe forms of depression? See a show of hands? You can put your hands down. How many in this church have been through a divorce? Put your hands down. How many in your past have struggled with substance abuse? See a show of hands. How many you in how many of you in here have lost a child? Put your hands down. How many have lost a spouse? Put your hands down. How many have had a miscarriage before? Put your hands down. How many here have had to go to a counselor to either save or strengthen a marriage? It's real. Hands down. And the last one, how many of you in here have suffered from doubting God and have had serious faith struggles about God? You can put your hands down. 
We are people who come into this place and we're on a journey and every single one of you is needed. And what we promote as a church is not that we're a church of messed up people. That's not where our story ends. The message of being a church that's full of messed up people is it's kind of good news, but the gospel presents much better news than just being a church of messed up people. We're a church of messed up people who join together as a church to live into God's redemption and restoration. There is a journey for you. So I don't want you to let your experiences to define who you are because that's what, that's what Satan wants to do with us is to convince us that what you've done in your past or the tragedies of your past have now defined who you are forever. Jesus is saying, hey, I want to define you and help you navigate life through all these things. And I want us to be able to look at each other, even as we sing a, a couple of songs in a few minutes and in our hearts, what we're, what we're going to claim over each other is that, hey, for those of you who are struggling with letting go of God, don't let go of God because God's not letting go of you. And this is the year of the Lord's favor. And for God, there is expectation and there is invitation that no matter where we've been or where we are, God is moving us into a direction that draws us closer to Jesus. Um, And I don't see God looking down upon any of his children and saying, hey, that person is like, they're barely redeemed, but let's just leave it at that. I don't see God looking upon anyone and saying, I don't want to develop that one. I don't want it to mature that one. I don't want to grow that one. God looks upon all of his children saying, I want to save that one and I want them to live into their salvation. So um, one, one way we offer every week as, as a church is that we have shepherds and we have prayer leaders. I want to ask those of you who are going to places to receive people for prayer, if you will, go ahead and move to those places. And the only place that you have, you have where you can bring something into this ch- entire church is up here to my right. There will be a shepherd who is here to receive you. All the other places in here, it's for you and that person. It's for you to go to them to receive prayer, to ask for a blessing from God, a word from God, a truth from God. Uh, but up here to my right, if there's someone who wants to give their life to Jesus or a prayer, this church can be praying over you. We provide that space uh, for you. For the rest of us, can we stand together? And I want to read the ending of Ephesians 4 over us as we um, join and sing in a couple of songs. Here's how Ephesians 4 verse 15 ends. And just receive this from the Lord. Speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. And for the reading of the word, the church said, Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. Just as I am without one by that